This is the EPLOG audio experience. We're all about building personal brands on the internet. But when a recruiter or investor scans your profile, what are some of the things you shouldn't say or do? Also, what makes some people stand out during presentations, interviews or even conversations? Hello and welcome to Voice of Achievers with me, Yashika. We continue our HR mini-series with a focus on learning and development, business communication and training today. And our guest is Mr. Sanjay Jha, the Executive Director of the renowned Dale Carnegie Training Operations in India, which has a global experience of having worked with over 400 of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now, an XLRI alumnus, Sanjay is also a public speaker and trainer himself. He's been a TEDx speaker and has addressed audiences at distinguished national and international universities, including the Columbia Business School in New York, also organizations like Goldman Sachs, Microsoft, United Nations Young Achievers Conclave, NHRD, among many others. He's also a regular contributor for publications like the Huffington Post, the National Herald and the India Today Group. He's also widely popular for his one-liners on social media like Twitter and LinkedIn. And we're so happy that you're here with us, Sanjay. Uh, thanks, Yashika, for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you. Now, Sanjay, social media has become almost like a tool for opinions and perspectives. Mm -hmm. While someone is building, especially professionals and uh, entrepreneurs are building their personal brand and leveraging it, what are some of the things that they should and shouldn't do? I think the one thing that everyone must do as a, what I call as a fundamental uh, principle and never compromise with Yashika is authenticity. You know, the biggest problem that we have is we live in a world of Instagram filters. Everything is filtered. Ultimately, you need to be genuine. Mm -hmm. The problem with social media has been that everyone wants to outdo the other, right? So I think there is a tremendous pressure to be one up on social media. And that can very often tempt an individual into exaggeration. And uh, more critically is basically deluding themselves into an image they might want to be perceived as, as opposed to what they truly are. And I think uh, to my mind, that is the defining parameter of how you should be perceived as a brand, as a personal brand on social media or outside. The other thing is on social media is your ability to be a little concise, pithy. Hmm. You know, don't 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 kind of indulge in promotion and publicity and PR. Right. You know, let the beauty of what you do or what you write or an acting that you can pull off. Let it be more instinctive, spontaneous, because everybody's peddling themselves, right? And I think if you want to stand out, I would say be subtle. From an HR point of view, um, Sanjay, when people are looking at your profiles, you know, what are the things mm -hmm. that they see or how do you feel that a, a certain profile stands out vis-a-vis -vis another? Well, let me tell you that uh, when I meet people or when people write to me with their brief uh, CVs or bulky, uh, you know, kind of achievement list, 
you know, I, I like to cut to the chase. So my first advice to people uh, looking out for jobs or HR people who are screening them is come to the point as soon as possible. Right. So for example, if we are looking for a, a trainer or a sales guy, you want to know what have you accomplished? So the most important thing is I don't like a CV which is longer than one page. Right. The maximum concession I'm willing to give is two. If, if you can't say it in one page, you can't say it. And anything more than one page is superfluous. So try and keep your material precise and to the point. Don't indulge in jargons. My kind request to people is, so in one page, tell me your story. Yeah. It's like it's like a synopsis, right? So in one page, tell me what have you accomplished? Where do you want to go? And why me? Nice. When we're talking of, you know, because we are coming to business communication, business community and you've been in the communication space for almost two decades i know from mm -hmm. a business communication point of view can you tell us what is the secret sauce how does one stand out when they are say presenting as an interviewee or uh, presenting to a vc as a startup founder you know, I, I think to my mind, the most important thing is you be in that particular moment. So, you know, if you're there to talk to a, a, a private equity guy or a venture capitalist, or you're addressing an audience, be in that moment. At that moment, please don't allow yourself to be distracted by, you know, either the expectation of a funding or how the audience is going to ask you something at the end. Are they going to clap? Are they going to give you a standing ovation? Forget all that. So you got to be in that moment. And I think the most interesting way to be interesting is to be interested in people you know you know like for example if you're there talking to a venture capitalist try and understand what the venture capitalist wants right so what does he want right he wants to see talent he wants to see hope he wants to see entrepreneurship they want to see some dream they like passion they want to see some kind of a commitment to that belief that you have hmm. And more important, I think ultimately they want to they want to see someone whom they can dream with. So if you understand these basics, you will vibe. But eventually, if you are not thinking about yourself, like I'll tell you, anybody who's interested in raising money, don't think about yourself becoming uh, the next um, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. No, forget that. Think about you do so well that the guy who funds you becomes your biggest brand ambassador. Right. Think about the shareholders he's got to serve. And I think you make the story. So I think if you always think about the other party interested in you, uh, you usually do much better than otherwise. This is a good point and brings me to how much of it then is preparation and how much of it is on the go? You know, Yashika, that question answers itself. If you're prepared, you can really be on the go. But every interface has to be important to you. Hmm. Every interaction somebody is giving you their time, hmm. make it meaningful. So, you know, my simple thing is to make it meaningful, you got to be prepared about a message that you want to convey. It may be one message, maybe more than one. But if you are prepared with your story uh, and you are asked something off the cuff, you will invariably find that you will have a response and an answer that practically addresses the problem. I'll give you one example of my own. You know, when I finished my MBA interview at Accelerate for 
ANZ Greenlist Bank donkeys years ago, hmm. and it was the hottest job going on in the campus. It was the highest paying job on the campus, and you know the standard questions were what? I mean, how do you look at a balance sheet? The importance of customer service. What do you think of the Indian economy? Why banking? You know what was the last question? The last question was, uh, Sanjay, if you had a choice to have dinner with anybody living or dead, and that person would turn up at your invitation, who would you have dinner with? Now you don't. People don't normally prepare for these questions. Correct. But because you know, because I, you know, I, I have a role model. I have somebody whom I love to read. I just spontaneously came up with an answer, and I said, "Mahatma Gandhi." So I do believe that if you're prepared, you are ready to handle anything very spontaneously and instinctively. And a simple answer, in my opinion, is that preparation is probably more than fifty percent of your ultimate presentation. Talking of which, let's talk about difficult questions, Sanjay. More often than not. during interviews or even when there is a vc funding presentation there are invariably difficult questions thrown at you how does one prepare for those well yashika very frankly speaking i mean uh, if you look at a venture funder you know there are many of them who love to look at your plans who look at your projections who question you on your assumptions market share profitability but mostly people look at the promoter themselves very closely who's this guy or who's this woman hmm. who's going to handle this and do they have the necessary ethics or morality or passion or grit or dream or you know just the whole ability to maybe carry people with them so you know i think the answer to your question is very straightforward you can get the you know the statistical answers pretty much by keeping your metrics ready you can tell them this is my growth rate blah 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 this is my projected eps if we do in uh, an ipo etc but the larger question is that whenever you go for an interview you should be able to create your own faqs hmm. what are the frequently asked questions in which you can add those that might be surprising hey which is the last book you read what do you think about the ukraine problem uh, do you believe leaders are born or made uh you know you know there, there can be a question on uh, what happened if you were the prime minister of india what were the three things you would do so you know it's all about basically preparation includes anticipation and really in public speaking or mm. fundraising or anything you got to be ready for uh, unexpected question but you anticipate them so i also believe that one of the honesty elements in an interview or a q and a right is you can be honest enough to say i i, I can't answer that or i don't want to answer it because i'm not sure right. or you just say i don't know yeah. you know the, the problem with us is that we create such an image of ourselves we're human we make mistakes we screw up it's okay it's cool right now there are group discussions and there is a lot of conversation around introversion and extroversion now when a group discussion mm-hmm. happens how does one stand out and can one stand out without even talking uh, you know interviewers are not just looking at aggressive people no harm please go ahead and show what you know but they also look around for good team players hmm. or people who have the ability to listen you know in my opinion and my experience in corporate life the one attribute that is most underestimated and probably what even most leaders are guilty of not practicing 
is good listening. Uh, right now, I can tell you, you're a good listener. And I do want to say this, that, you know, a, in a group discussion, please do make sure you make your point. Right. Uh, but I think fundamentally give everyone a chance. But you have to, in a group discussion, I like people who are confident enough to wait for their time to come. Right. And when they get their time, they make their statement and they do so concisely. Remember, everyone wants to pitch in and to impress the, the people who are hiring you. Therefore, the trick lies that when you take your chance, you got to be able to say it all very succinctly. Right. In my opinion, conversations are best when you make your point in a short, precise, you know, what I call as a one-pager CV. You don't need to say it in millions of words. Hmm. It's like love, right? Love is very often expressed uh, through body language. No words are spoken. So when you're speaking in a group discussion, make your point, make it emphatically, and then let others come in. And then wait when you have to, if you somebody says something that you don't agree with, then challenge it with the equal amount of vigor. And last but not the least, uh, you know, try and summarize the conversation if you can. So when the group ends this discussion, volunteer to summarize it. Or maybe everybody gets a chance to conclude with a closing How line. How does that help, Sanjay? Well, let me tell you. I mean, I mean, the ability to look at all sides. Very often in group discussions, there's a polarized discussion. Right. Some people are for or against. And I think the important thing is to be able to give a more dispassionate assessment. Nice. There's no really nice. black and white world we live in. Right. And our ability to kind of you know, summarize it by doing justice in a very neutral fashion helps conclude the discussion. So I can, for example, say, you know, Yashika Novak Djokovic is an amazing counter puncher and uh, he's probably going to win more than Roger Federer. Roger Federer is outstanding because he's so elegant and uh, he brought a certain beauty to the game. And unlike Novak Djokovic, he's not controversial. Right. He hasn't taken on a system. Right. And he's been perhaps a role model in the way he's done his charitable work and the way he carries himself on the court. So I have praised your candidate and have actually said my candidate is better. And you don't have to make it extremely vicious or extremely aggressive. Beautiful. I think this is the nuanced art of communication in general, which you have been leading from a training and a coaching point of view. Uh, when we're looking at a career, a career in training, uh, Sanjay, and we're looking at building it from scratch as one mm -hmm. steps into the corporate world or, you know, the mm -hmm. work world, so to say. How is it that you work towards that trajectory? What can be a good start? To become a good trainer? Yes. I think, I think the most uh, important attribute for a good trainer is be well-read. Mm -hmm. ha has been that people tend to you know, read whatever they're supposed to train and just throw it out. And I think your ability to make it more contemporary, to give examples, to narrate episodes that make it come alive, that's the real trainer. So I believe a trainer has to be somewhere a storyteller, hmm. someone who kind of makes you so raptured or engrossed that you feel like you're watching a Shah Rukh Khan film. You know, so I think the ability to kind of hold people's attention cannot come by your saying, you know, leadership is about charisma, power, 
command. The five principles of leadership are delegation, empowerment. Well, you know, everybody knows that. Right. But if you're able to say that, you know, John F. Kennedy once famously said, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Ladies and gentlemen, why do you think that John F. Kennedy said that? And if he said those great words, why did somebody assassinate him? Now, hang on, that becomes a story. Right. Now, suddenly you're thinking of a great quote and you're like, shit, somebody killed this guy. Right. And, and then you can kind of get deeper into the entire narrative. So I just believe that a, a trainer must be very well read in modern literature and what's going on in the world. And to be able to take any context, take any context, can you give it a meaning? Hmm. Your ability to be able to see a value in everything is what a trainer is about, right? Because your job is to kind of make somebody learn something. Hmm. And trust me, Ashika, in any good, bad, ugly, unpleasant, beautiful, volatile, VUCA, whatever you call it in the HR business, there's always something to learn. Indeed. And talking of learning... When we're talking of upskilling in a space that's so dynamic, in a world that's so dynamic, uh, Sanjay, what according to you would be the top three skills that young leaders, professionals, entrepreneurs need to learn for now? Yeah, for now. Let's look at the post-pandemic world. It's dominated by big tech. Uh, every company is now, frankly speaking, looking at an app and you know, doing more online stuff with you. The world has gone very increasingly tech. And yet you find that there is no replacement for the human emotion or what we call as the more touchy-feely thing. Hmm. And in my opinion, the more tech the world has become, the more artificial intelligence, machine learning, online the world has become, I think in that cardboard world, you need the skill of interpersonal relationship, communication, and, and eventually, I guess, is your ability to kind of become more resilient. So for me, the skills really are your ability to get along with people, your ability to communicate with people, both verbal, body language, written, and um, you know, establish your relationships and build your resilience because these are skills that take time. How much of... HR, you 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 mentioned uh, the EQ. There is mm -hmm. the EQ, and as an HR professional, there are hard calls that you have to take. What is that balance mm -hmm. of the emotional quotient and taking the hard calls from a business decision point of view? Well, you know, I think uh, today a lot of HR people are called as business partners, given the fact that many industries have grown vertically exponentially. The role of HR has become more of understanding what you bring to the table and the cost and the productivity and all the various metrics you have. But, you know, in my opinion, what is HR about, right? It's, it, it, you know, no matter how much you are supposed to be a business ally and you need to look at your numbers, eventually what's your job? Your job is to really make sure your team is motivated, your team is happy, your team is engaged. Your team is excited to come tomorrow to the workplace. Majority of the CEOs don't even know the names of the people who work for them. Right. Let's be honest about it. 
right? Forget small organizations, bigger organizations, nobody really even knows. The HR's job is even if you are, you know, 50,000 workforce company, are you making sure that your people are finding ways to get connected? You can't just leave it to an, a software. You can't just leave it to a cafeteria that serves cappuccino. Hmm. You can't leave it to one offsite where people just go climbing rocks. Yeah. I think it's a much more than that. And I believe therefore the role of HR will always remain. Do you care for your teams? You see, what is human relations, right? It's called HR for a reason. Hmm. So are you able to kind of figure out why am I losing good people? Why are 10 people pissed with the company? Why are people unhappy? And if you don't know that, frankly, you're just treating your people like commodities or cattle. And therefore, no matter how much the size of the organization, I believe EQ is going to be an overriding one, not just for HR, but for leaders and CEOs. How do you build that? Uh, you know, I, I'll interrupt you here, Sanjay. How do you build EQ? You know, what's the fundamental basis to build EQ? We're all talking about building EQ, but where does this begin? Okay, so, you know, as a second part to the last question, you know, when you said, how do you handle the tough part? You do handle the tough part. You know, when the tough part comes, you have to ask some people to leave or the company has to retrench or what you call as rationalization happens. People, if you have respected them, they will understand where you're coming from. But if you have treated them like many startups do, which is like, hey, you know, I'm doing your favor, come on in, and you know, you're gone. You've seen how many ed techs have just sacked people left, right, and center. It's because you treat people like commodities. A simple point that if you treat them well, today employees are smart enough to know that okay, the business is going through a bad time. I understand why I'm I'm being asked to go through the exit door. Can you teach EQ? I think you can. Uh, like I believe leaders are not. Born, I think leaders are made. I'm a big believer that leaders are made. Some people have a, a certain advantage. They're more genetically, more risk-taking or they're extroverted and therefore they are thought to be more popular. But truth be said, some of the best leaders in the world are introverted people. So I really don't think it's about extroverted and introverted either. But how do you teach EQ, right? I think the simple situation by which you make people understand EQ is to kind of make them interact with people and understand the human side of them. I call it not an interview in Carnegie, Dale Carnegie, they call it the interview. Do you understand your people? Hmm. You know you know something, Yashika, find out, uh, you know, how many people do you, do we really keep asking them? What do you fear? You know, what? when is the time that you went down? What are you struggling with? People will never recover from many things that have gone wrong. And I think the only way you understand emotional intelligence is by empathy, by engagement by hanging out with people and in my opinion, genuinely taking an interest in somebody's life and realizing that you may be the CEO, you might call the HR and say, you know, budget come karna hai, you got to get rid of 50 people. But imagine the man who goes home to his wife and children, worries about AMI and for the next job, thinks about plans of a holiday that he or she may have to cancel. Right. So I, I have a firm belief that while EQ can be learned. Leaders need to, or even a non-leader, someone rising up the ranks. The more you spend time with people, hmm. understanding them beyond the jobs they do, you'll automatically learn the importance of relationships. And then empathy becomes literally a way of being. Yeah. How do you pick... Sanjay, uh, you know, if, if there's someone in the early stages of their career, how do you pick this one has, you know, leadership qualities or can embrace leadership more easily than the other? 
Well, I love people who actually kind of um, speak up their minds because majority of the people are conformists. They don't want to take on their bosses because they feel, you know, the boss will not like it. Right. Yeah, but you're professional, you're pleasant, question the system. Because, you know, leadership is about, you know, your ability to create change. Sometimes it can be disruptive, but your ability to find a way, to, you can't improve things if it's a status quo. So I think I love people who actually challenge systems and look for ways and means by which you can improve anything. The pricing, the customer service. Respectfully. I mean, that is an underlying assumption. I'm not going to say you can't come and call your boss <laughs> a moron, right? Yeah, you know, that's not going to work. Right. That's that that's bad, bad, bad politics. So, you know, you got to know how to meaningfully get your way out. So I, I love people who actually go out and speak their minds out. Second, you like people who are open to an alternative thought. Who are not like, you know, closing out other ideas. Hmm. So supposing your colleague disagrees with you, listen to them. You know, your boss says, how about this? Now you can't be fixated on an idea. So I love people who are, you know, very forthright. And I love people who are flexible. Right. Because in life, if you don't say what you feel, you're leading a compromised existence. And if you're not flexible and you're fixed, man, how are you different from 99% of the people? Yeah. And, you know, therefore, I love people who, when they make a mistake, they come and say, you know, I goofed a boss. No harm in going and telling your boss, I'm sorry, this didn't happen. I need two more days. But don't give that bullshit that, you know, it was a weekend and, you know, I had a flat tire. Get on with that. Right, right. Yeah, and I think this part, I, I'd only like to add that the, the fact that you can own up your mistakes also comes from your leaders or from the seniors where you've seen them. It's it's a part of the culture and the DNA of where you are, right? Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I completely agree. In my opinion, you know, one of my favorite uh, boring quotes it has been used a million times, but I need to repeat it for you because it's so true that culture eats strategy for breakfast is so true. It is so true because, you know, ultimately it's a work culture that creates the strategy. It's a work culture that will create the ambience for change. It's a work culture that will create the innovation. So, you know, I totally agree with that. Sanjay, in all of these years, what has been, what have been two of the most challenging aspects for you as a professional, you know, that you have overcome or learned with time? Uh, one was when I started cricketnext.com, which by the way, became the world's number two cricket portal. And um, it was later on acquired by Mr. Mukesh Ambani's uh, television group. I remember when uh, it was launched, we had venture capital funding and uh, Shekhar Suman had called my wife, Pallavi and me. Uh, we were called the, I remember Rithik Roshan's movie was a super hit, Kahona Pyar Hai. And I remember Shaker Suman introducing us on Sony TV as uh, in his movers and shakers as the Rithik Roshans of the internet world. Six months later, the dot-com bust happened and we had nothing. Right. We, we were not getting new funding. Our cash flow was down. Our cash balances were down. And this was the year 2000. And we had already committed to a huge manpower, technology, growth, etc. And, you know, I think the ability to survive that downturn was remarkable. And I discovered my ability to adapt myself. You know, I lost some of my best editorial team. 
And overnight from becoming the managing director of the company, I ended up becoming the managing editor of the website. Right. And, um, and I think how we survived it till we broke even and sold it to Mr. Ambani's television group is I think a remarkable story of resilience. And I learned from that, that you should never get carried away by hype and hoopla. I admit very yeah. frankly, Ashika, that I was transported by a degree of hubris into believing that I was the next IPO story. I remember going for a party where somebody introduced me to five people and said, take, meet this guy. Don't forget to take his card and his number. He's the next big internet sensation. And I actually began to believe, believe that, that foolish, foolish illusion, right? And, and you learn. So that's my one big lesson that be ready for volatility. More important, never get carried away and never be arrogant. That's exactly where I was coming to, uh, Sanjay. You know, the, that thing about ego as an entrepreneur, just like you said, from the managing director, you become the the, the managing editor to, you know, you're doing the, the operations to business development to everything and anything. You've broken that ego and you know that perhaps also a part of leadership, right? So... Um, well, it is. I, I, I'll give you one example that, you know, end of day when you are an entrepreneur, yeah, and that's the best part of being an entrepreneur. Uh, you're not just worried about impressing a board with your balance sheet. You got to make sure that the lights are off in the bathroom before you leave for the night. That's how you start off, you know. You know, don't forget Bezos started from a garage, right? right. And I think you got to worry about what is the cost of running that bulb for another couple of extra hours. Uh, you you actually begin to value the little things that a regular employee may take so much for granted. And, and I think that teaches you something. Yeah. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, you, you're worried about environment, you're worried about today, good governance. Why is ESG become a big story in today's corporate world? It's not just about the shareholder value, right? It's not just about stakeholder value. It's become into a value that you create for the universe. And uh, why is climate change a big issue today, Ashika? That's for the same reason. Um, and I do believe that today's youngsters and millennials and zenennials in particular have every right to ask these questions. What are we doing with you know, gender sensitivity or you know, with climate change? What are we doing about uh, you know, creating a world where there is a greater degree of tolerance for different opinions? And I do believe that that's what leadership is about. If you can inspire your team into becoming good social characters, if, they make, if you make people around you better human beings, I think you're making a remarkable contribution to society. What does achievement mean to you, Sanjay? Well, I think achievement for me is is today, once upon a time. I mean, I probably that that metrics has changed over the years. Um, I remember when I started, my big dream was to, hey, be in Citibank uh, as probably the CEO in New York. You know, somewhere by the 30s, I completely lost that drive. And I was like, what am I doing here in these overpaid jobs, doing mundane stuff, having a company paid accommodation in South Mumbai, a club membership, a car driver and yet i was doing something so crappy so unexciting <laughs> and and you know i look back and i believe you really begin to change yeah and you know if people in my generation did it later i think the younger people today can start off much earlier Absolutely. i know of so many stories where people are doing remarkably good social work and or social socially profitable work right. it doesn't have to be a not for profit you can actually even make a profit but you know, you're doing good work that makes a difference to those who can't access normal services you provided to them. 
and you grow your own business, you, you know, you actually become a role model. And I, I do believe that when you make a difference to others is when you begin to make life meaningful. So if you were to ask me, what's my biggest achievement, I think it's been actually in politics, where I have fought for democratic, liberal, secular values, and I continue to do so. And I do hope that even as a leader in my corporate world, I've always tried to tell my team that whatever you do, don't cut corners, never be unethical and immoral about it. You know, if you have to take a loss, take a loss, but don't, don't deny your value or a commitment that you made to a customer. So in the corporate world, I think my biggest, well, if you can call it an achievement will be the fact that I've never compromised with my ethics. And as far as my non-corporate avatar is concerned, which is nowadays more political or social, is the fact that I think I fight for what India ought to be. I fight for what Mahatma Gandhi, my my famous man who got me my first job Your in first NZ, yes. stood, stood for. And I do believe that that's a joy that's unparalleled. And that gives you an enormous sense of satisfaction and a sense of joy. A sense of achievement. Yeah. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much, Sanjay, for your thoughts and the unabashed perspectives that you've shared with us. Thank you for being on the show. Lovely having you. Thank you very much, Yashita. And I must tell you that you've been a fantastic interviewer. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to share your thoughts and feedback in the comment section. Do rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like the episode. Subscribe or hit follow Voice of Achievers on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Hubhopper, Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana or wherever you get your podcasts from. Send us an email on editor at voiceofachievers.com or find us on voiceofachievers.com to share guest suggestions or topics that you'd like us to cover. Don't forget to tune in next week again. Voice of Achievers on EP Log Media.